Welcome to California Women Lawyers Podcast Seat at the Table, volume number four. I am your host, Summer C. Selleck, joined today by my co-host, Ariel Brownell-Lee, and our guest, Louise Rennie. Louise Rennie is a lawyer, former supervisor, and one-time city attorney for both San Francisco and Richmond. She is a graduate of both Michigan State University and Columbia Law School. Ms. Rennie was appointed supervisor by Mayor Diane Feinstein in 1978. She acted as member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for eight years from 1978 to 1986, where she was the chair of the Finance Committee. She was appointed by Feinstein as city attorney in 1986 and became the first female city attorney in San Francisco's history. She served in the position until 2001. In this role, she argued on behalf of the state before both California and the United States Supreme Courts. Ms. Rennie served as general counsel for the San Francisco Unified School District, where she led the effort to combat corruption existing at the time and establish a legal department. She currently works at Renee She currently works at Rennie, Sloan, Holtzman, and Sakai LLP in San Francisco, which is a public law firm. She was founder and former California Women Lawyers President from 1977 to 1978. Welcome, Ms. Rennie. We look forward to speaking to you. You have had a long and impressive career in law. Checkered, maybe. (laughs) Checkered, that's a nice way. Why why checkered? Yeah. Well, just because of different jobs, that sort of thing. That's why I always joke about that. Uh, I like checkers, too. I like checkers. (laughs) What inspired you? to go to law school at a time when not a lot of women were going to law school? Well, um, I ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be uh, a lawyer. And um, I don't know whether it was my uncle who worked for a bank and he would always come to our house and tell what the latest law story was and lawyer. And then one time there was this big murder trial in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. And uh, the lawyer in the case was on the bus that my mother and I were riding on. So I just went up and I started talking to him, and my mother couldn't believe it. But it was just <laughs> something I, I just always wanted to be a lawyer. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so you always wanted to be a lawyer. I heard an interview with you, I, I Googled you, um, that was talking about one of the biggest hurdles that you've had in your career, and you said it was being a woman, yes. which I think is, is understandable <laughs> for all of us. So can you talk about that? What kind of hurdles have you have you seen? Well, over the years, I, I mean, I said I always wanted to be a lawyer, and I had wonderful parents who never in any way said, well, you couldn't be a lawyer. So, But I remember I was in high school, and they did have counselors back in those days. <laughs> and I told my high school counselor that I was going to be a lawyer. And she said, Louise, girls can't be lawyers. And I just no, I don't think I ever went back to her again. So I just kept... Not a good guidance counselor. No, so I just kept real quiet about it. But I did have a Latin teacher, uh, and uh, she also happened to be uh, the debate class teacher. And she, she was, I, in her own way, I think she was inspiring because she would always encourage me to do my best and that sort of thing. And then, of course, I, uh, I went to college. I had a wonderful mentor. I had somebody who actually was a friend of the family who was a counselor at Michigan State where I went to college. And she was very encouraging about my desire to be a lawyer. 
And uh, so when I applied to law school, I applied to Harvard. I mean, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And you know when you're, not, when you're young how naive you can be? I mean, it never even crossed my mind that Harvard wouldn't take women. Well, when I got there, I realized that that particular year they had gone on a big for them recruitment. So there were 13 of us in a class of over 500, and they thought this was a really big deal. And, uh, so, you know, so I went and the first year, uh, most of the classes, the of course, all male professors, would not uh, call on the women in the class. And they, the only class was in one in tort class, but all the others, the, the professors just ignored us. And at that point, there was one professor who, in his class, had what he was known as Ladies' Day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people don't believe me when I tell this story, but it's true. And on one particular day, he would call the women to the front of the class and have them, quote, recite their lessons for the day. And I remember the night before, a group of us got together and thought, you know, we should do something. But, you know, we we didn't. It was easier in those days, I guess, not to do anything. But I certainly wouldn't be the same today. (laughs) But in in any event, um, as it turned out, uh, even though I was never going to get married, I met uh, somebody and did get married at the end of my first year, switched to the University of Pennsylvania, which was entirely different, very welcoming in many ways to the to the women's students. And then my third year, because of my husband was transferring, I went to Columbia, and Columbia was very good uh, about women. It was just stodgy old Harvard. (laughs) So it is fast forward, uh, gives me great pleasure to know Harvard's had a law school dean, and now many of the professors there are women professors. So uh, I love seeing the, the sea change. I will have to say as well, looking back, that well, right after law school, my husband and I both went to work for the Kennedy administration. And, Who's that? Uh, Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kennedy? I don't know that name. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, my husband went with the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, and I wanted to do that too. But Bobby Kennedy said, well, husband and wives couldn't work together. So I actually ended up working with the Federal Communications Commission and doing some civil rights work there. Uh, In those days, they had what was known as the Fairness Doctrine, and at that point, many of the stations in the South were really literally outlets for the Ku Klux Klan. So we said, no, fairness dictates that other points of view have to be broadcast. So I made my little mark there. Fast forward after uh, the President Kennedy's assassination and we went to San Francisco, I had a terrible time finding a job, even though I had at, at Columbia, I mean, I had done very well and had worked for the Legal Aid Society, so you know, I had, a, I think, a pretty good record. But 
many of the law firms not only would they not interview me but said point blank well they weren't hiring women and one large law firm which now gets awards for being friendly to women <laughs> said well they might hire me but only in uh, the trust and estate section which that was not my interest, mm -hmm. although I recognize that's a great field. That was not my interest. I get it. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, another law firm, uh, all of the partners wanted to hire me. They said, well, I had to meet with the senior partner. And so I went to meet with the senior partner, and he said, well, would you ever expect to be a partner in this firm? And I said, well if you liked my work and you thought it was good work and it would otherwise entitle me to be partner yes i would expect to be a partner well that was the end of that interview oh, <laughs> well, at least he was transparent i guess yeah. I mean, that's the only silver lining in oh, that no. story <laughs> no ab ab absolutely so um but uh, you know ironically um it worked out very well because I ended up working I we knew uh, some people who had uh, it was a two-person neighborhood practice and so I had barking dogs and <laughs> and uh, I had really I had some very fun cases and then I heard that the state attorney general's office was going to be hiring now you have to realize that at this point in time, the California State Attorney General had hired a few women back during World War II because they were the only ones available, mm -hmm. but had not hired any since. And the University of California, Bolt Hall, told the State Attorney General that if he did not uh, at least interview some of the women students on campus, they couldn't come back. Mm. And so um, I heard about this, and even though I hadn't gone to the University of California, I thought, well, you know, it was worth a shot. And I still remember uh, when I had an interview with this one man, he said, well, now, what about your children? Shouldn't you be home taking care of your children? And I said, well, to tell you the truth of the matter, I think my husband and children would really be happy if I was out of the house for a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and doing some work <laughs> because I seem to have quite a bit of energy. <laughs> wow. That's a good well, response. I guess, I guess somehow or other uh, that did it. But again, all the women that were hired were put in the criminal section of the office, not the civil section. Hmm. Because I guess, you know, with the criminals, we didn't have real clients. We, we did a lot of appellate work, that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I was really lucky. I ended up with not only California Supreme Court cases and Ninth Circuit cases, but I had uh, I had two oral arguments in the United States Supreme Court, and then I worked with others on some other uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases. And uh, so that was, in fact, I still remember my first argument before the United States Supreme Court. My uh, uh, parents were and husband were there, and they asked if they could bring in. We had two daughters, and uh, and the clerk said, "Well, if it, 
children kept very quiet. They <laughs> could come. So I, of course, didn't notice at the time, but found out later that the girls were given pencils and they were drawing pictures of the justices, who was a happy justice and who was an unhappy <laughs> oh, justice. Oh, I like how old were the girls at the time? <laughs> yeah. They, they couldn't have been more than... Uh, Four and five. I mean, they wow. were they were really they were really little. So, I mean, it's very surprising that That's that they were allowed in, but but they were. And uh, I think one of the, the fondest memories I have is that at that time Justice Black was uh, still on the court. It was one of his last cases, and he asked me about this really really obscure case, but I knew it. <laughs> and I was able to respond. He, d he gave me such a nice smile, and just as if, good girl, you really knocked yeah, it out well, of the park. <laughs> you showed, yeah, like you showed up. Good job. That was yeah. a curveball. He was like kind of tricky, but you got yeah. it there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so, um, again, you know, times have, have really uh, changed. Uh, I have to ask you, did Justice Ginsburg ask you any questions? Uh, well, she wasn't she there. Oh, she wasn't there yeah, yet. She, that was, she came much later when oh. finally, you know, there were women on the court, and yeah. that, was, that was later. Because this yeah. was between late 70s and early 80s yes. that you were there. Okay. Yes. So yes. you weren't there for O'Connor either? No. No, okay. I so was who there the, earlier. Who were the grumpy? Who were the grumpy? Oh, you know, I'm <laughs> not really. Okay, I, I, we'll only, I remember the nice ones. We'll, we'll have to get them in and see if they can show us the photos. Yeah, the, the later, I was uh, later when I was city attorney, we uh, had a case in the United States Supreme Court, and I did not argue that. My chief deputy argued it, but you know, I was there in the court and. And uh, we were there. And then later, my husband had a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think we might be one of the few yeah. husband and wives that have Power ever couples. argued before uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you win your case? Uh, I won mine. My husband did not win his. And they were actually very mean to him. He was, he was representing, this is a pro bono case, he was representing some grandmothers that were being evicted mm -hmm. from public housing, actually in Oakland, oh. because um, their grandsons in this case had pot or drugs, and there was a law that if anybody in the household had drugs, the whole family got kicked out. So here are these grandmothers being kicked out. And so my husband was arguing on the case of the grandparents and actually the justices were kind of nasty him we still remember clarence thomas asking the this other lawyer representing the housing authority now mr so and so are drugs a problem in public housing yeah. hmm. <laughs> you're like okay wow. what year was that case oh let's see the 90s right that was in the 90s yeah in the 90s yeah yeah. So maybe O'Connor and Ginsburg well, were around then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't. I hate to see today, but anyhow, it, it turned out in that case, as a side story, that after that case, the the HUD was sufficiently embarrassed about what they had done to these people because yeah. you know it was a big story in mm -hmm. all the press. These grandmothers were, were really nice people.
people, elderly, etc. And so they ended up letting them stay after all of that. Oh, so it worked out even though they were <laughs> worked out men. even though, yeah, even though all's well that ends well, I guess. <laughs> That's I, you know, it's it's always strange to meet anyone who's argued in front of the Supreme Court and then have you know you have done it a couple of times and your husband. That's kind of. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It was highly, I think it's highly unusual. So, yeah. 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 yeah, uh, So you were talking a little bit about some mentors that you had in your, Mm -hmm. in your, your professional career. Do you want to, can you talk to us about who those were? Were they men? Were they women? How Um, were they mentors? Well, actually, I have to say my parents were mentors because my mother, for example, never had an opportunity to go to college. Her family was simply too poor, and nobody in their family ever went to college, even though they were very smart and very well-read, kept up with current affairs. But uh, my mother was uh, very uh, enthusiastic, and, uh, and it was clear that both my brother and I were to get a good education and do other was that was just a given. And my father was also uh, that, of that same viewpoint. We did have, my father had a distant uh, cousin who was a woman lawyer. And those days she had worked with her father who was a lawyer and you didn't have to go to law school necessarily. Yeah. And she hadn't gone to law school. Now I had never, I didn't actually meet her uh, until I was uh, in law school. I met her. But another person who was a real mentor was uh, the woman who was my counselor at Michigan State and really helped me quite a bit in terms of, you know, what you had to do to get your application in and that sort of thing, helped me with my classes, that sort of thing, and really uh, encouraged me in in many, many ways. I can't say I had a mentor in law school, other than I'd have to give my <laughs> husband full credit. Well, for you, went to, you went to three different law schools, so I don't know how you, I don't even have, know how you made it. Yeah. <laughs> usually you get to one and you start trying to figure out how to survive, yeah. and then. <laughs> no, I have to give my husband full credit for always being in support of whatever I wanted to do, whether it was in law school or later in public life when you know I decided to get involved in politics and was on the board of supervisors in San Francisco and then later as city attorney. So uh, he's, he's always been fully supportive, so I have to give him full marks. <laughs> what do you prefer between private practice and government practice? What was more fulfilling for you? Well, I I loved government practice. I I love public life. I think I think the challenges are really huge and I firmly believe that you can make a difference. And um I was recently asked to write an article about the San Francisco City Attorney's Office, and it caused me to go back and review some of the cases that we had done. And uh, the Olympic Club case, for example, where we sued the Olympic Club for discriminating in 
not admitting women or minorities. Mm -hmm. And everybody said, well, you can't sue a private club. And I said, well, the thing is, there you, three of their holes on the golf course are on San Francisco <laughs> land. Mm. So I sort of feel they have a choice. They can either stop discriminating or they can play on 15 holes. <laughs> so, oh, I like that workaround. Well, Get your case through. Was needless, needless to say, um, there were people who were pretty, pretty angry. And my husband was a member of the club at the time, and uh, they made life so uncomfortable for him. He he had to he had to leave. He he couldn't stay, but. Taking a look at that case, uh, fast forward, I mean, you now have women at Augusta, you now have uh, tournaments like in England, the recent pro tournament wasn't played because of their discriminatory policy, so, you know, it made a difference. Later, in another affirmative litigation case that we filed, uh, the first case was suing Joe Camel because uh -huh. for the adverse impact that tobacco has and the fact that they were targeting young people. They try to target young kids to get them smoking. And because San Francisco had public hospitals and clinics where like, it's provable that smoking had adverse impact and it affected public health, uh, so we, we sued Joe Camel. We won that case. There are no more Jan Joe Camel ads. And then yeah. later, we, the state, state attorney general wouldn't sue the tobacco industry. So I gathered up about uh, a number of cities and counties throughout the state of California, and we sued the tobacco industry with the result that, because the state attorney general hadn't sued, when there was the national settlement in California, although 50% of the proceeds went to the state, 50% of the proceeds went to local government. Mm -hmm. And to this day, cities and counties are still getting the results of some of the tobacco settlement because it was paid out in increments. Wow. In San Francisco, what we did with the tobacco money was we built, or I should say rebuilt Laguna Honda which is a very unique a skilled nursing hospital that takes care of people who need skilled nursing. It's one of, one of the few. And it was going to be shut down because it was an earthquake shape, but we used the tobacco money uh, to do that. So, and there's some other cases that we did like that. So to my point that I think in public life, you can have some real impacts. Now, in private practice, can you do some cases like that? Yes, you can. And can you make a difference in people's lives? Yes, you can. And we've had some cases in the office like that. Uh, we've handled some uh, discrimination cases where uh, businesses have had to change their tune. Uh, we've done some investigations. Uh, where, as a result of the investigation, some really bad people uh, got removed from their government jobs. And so you can do it. But, you know, it's, it's pretty clear my heart's still in public life. And I, in my own way, keep my hand in, although I try not to meddle. 
there are a group of us who are former deputies that uh, after the last election uh, became quite concerned about the rule of law and the application. And so we have uh, been working with some other uh, organizations on the East Coast, and we call we formed a nonprofit called the Coalition to Preserve, Protect, and Defend Democracy. Big words, but we all important words. Though. Yes, and recently, along with some others, we filed an amicus brief in the federal district court in Arizona, challenging President Trump's pardon of Arpaio oh. on the ground that the exercise of the pardon in the circumstances where it was contempt for violating court orders that affected individual rights, that the pardon power does not extend to that particular situation. Now. What's going to happen with the case? I do not know. But we filed the briefs the same day that the Justice Department took the position that they would not, uh, they had originally been in favor of the, the contempt citation, but of course, after the pardon, they filed a brief with the court saying, that's the end of the matter. The court has no power anymore. And we filed our brief saying, that's not true. Here we are, friends of the court, and we think that there's a serious constitutional issue. Oh. So, when's that being heard? Uh, yeah. that, well, she, the court has indicated there will be a hearing on October fourth. Okay. Now, whether we will be uh, invited, uh, I do not know, but uh, that we're we're still waiting to hear. Uh, yesterday there. There was a very good uh, op-ed piece in the Washington Post from Lawrence Tribe and then the UC Law Dean, uh, in effect saying the position we're taking is one that has merit. And there had been a previous uh, editorial in the New York Times by one of the people who is in our a name party in our amicus brief, uh, Professor Martin Reddish saying exactly the same thing. So it's unique. I don't. I don't know that this question has ever been decided before, but um, you know that's something in private practice I'm able to do, and we'll see if it has an impact or not. <laughs> well, that's fascinating, and I yeah. hope it does. <laughs> Me too. Well, it's a very unique question. I'll have to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you talked a little bit about your um, your role with FCC mm -hmm. and dealing with white supremacy mm -hmm. in the South mm -hmm. a long time ago. Um, how how have you how has the recent uh, recent things that have happened in the South and in South Carolina um, you know been sort of shown you you know reminiscent of the past? Yes. And, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I think. So. I mean, obviously, I am appalled. Um, I think that we're being taken back to a time that all of us had hoped that we had overcome, <laughs> but obviously not. And um, these these are very complex times. There's no question about it. I was recently uh, at a meeting. Uh, at which there were a number of representatives from rural counties in Northern California. And one of the themes that ran throughout is how 
they feel that nobody really listens to their concerns in Sacramento, that it's all Bay Area and LA. And I was thinking to myself as they were speaking, this seems to be a theme throughout not only the United States, but the world of uh, the combination, I think, of technology, globalization, which globalization has helped a lot of people in a lot of countries, but somehow or other we feel here it hasn't helped us, so many say. But I think the problem in the United States, of course, is complicated by the fact that we have a race problem that we haven't seriously addressed, and it extends not only to African Americans, but to Latinos. And I think there is a fear factor here that is compounded when you have, you know, highlighting some crimes but not others. Mm -hmm. When in fact, if you take a look at the crime issue, <laughs> it's our homegrown people, <laughs> not the immigrants who are responsible. So, uh, you know, it, it, when you have these complexities, to have a president who is speaking to the lowest common denominator, speaking to the fears of people, rather than literally, how can we all work together? Uh, how do we address the immigration problem, other than just saying everybody gets deported? Mm -hmm. That is not helping the situation. My own view is this man is a very, unstable, narcissistic person, but um, it, we all have our work to do to turn the situation around. And as I say, I think that to speak to the lowest common denominator in terms of our thinking rather than saying, okay, if this is a problem and you think it's a problem, how do we deal with it? but you don't have that kind of positive, thoughtful uh, response. And I think that the United States has a real fundamental problem. And I think some people recognize it, but some people don't. Yeah, reminds me of a quote uh, that I read recently. Um, I have no idea who said it, but the quote is, if you're not constructing something, then you're deconstructing something. Yes. And it, it feels like that in this country right now. Yes. Um, what, what, can, what can we do as, as lawyers in private practice and public, what can we do? I mean, we're not filing amicus briefs and, and like you are and changing the world, but we want to try. Local level. Yeah, I, local level. What can we do? I, you know, in, here in California and certainly in the Bay Area, um, you know, a lot of us think alike, there's just no question. When you go to other parts of the country, that's not true. So I think somehow or other, what we have to be looking at is how do we reach out or coordinate with others? I mean, uh, people that you know or should know to try to understand what they're talking about. And so, you know, I think 
contributing to candidates. Obviously, unfortunately, money makes a difference. So I think contributing to candidates, I think, you know, when there are elections going out to other states, not California, is what makes a a difference. And in the interim, I think there are certain organizations that are trying to reach out to others who don't think like we do. And, uh, you know, I... I am particularly drawn, I think, to the problems of the rural areas because I think there are problems in the rural area. I think there are poverty issues that are serious that I would like to understand better. And I think perhaps, you know, people have the time and we can try to understand some of the problems and try to deal with them. I mean, I'd love to be a class action lawyer in West Virginia. I mean, I can think of some suits already <laughs> that, you know, but they don't have that kind of legal resource in some places that I think could make a difference, but I think some serious thought could be given to how, for example, does Cal- do California women lawyers reach out to maybe people in other states to compare notes and what can we do to help? Absolutely. Um, so can we turn, how did you get involved in, in CWL, California Women Lawyers? And, and I, I'd like to know, I know you were around for the beginning of it. So, I was. So how did it all how start? How did it happen? <laughs> Give us the, the story. Well, the, the way it started was, you know, back in those days, there were not many women lawyers. And um, we all knew one another. And there was what I call some great instigators, uh, <laughs> Drew Ramey, of mm-hmm. course, and Joanne Garvey here in the north, and then there are people in Southern California, and um, the there had been a few meetings already before um, they called me and said, come on, you got to get involved, and so I did. So we... It probably was a bit of a consumer fraud case when I think about it. We touted ourselves as a statewide network of women lawyers. Well, of course, there was maybe only one woman lawyer in Fresno, but <laughs> that's all right. Well, it takes one to have yeah. representation. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and so we decided um, we were going to push for women <clears throat> judges. I'm trying to think. Um, California Women Lawyers was formed, and it was shortly thereafter, I believe, I don't have the sequence of events clearly in mind, when there was the campaign to unseat Rose Bird. Mm. And so California Women Lawyers decided they were going to do something. In fact, that's kind of a separate little story. I, Rose Bird took the position that Um, she was not going to actively campaign. She was going to stay above the fray. But a group of us thought that was not very realistic. So, I don't know, somehow or other, I was delegated to go up to Sacramento to see Phil Eisenberg, who was then in the assembly, later mayor, and who was a very close friend of Rose Bird. And to ask him, you know, there was going to be a campaign. If he couldn't run it, who who was going to run it? And he took one look at me and said, well, Louise, you're going to run the campaign. <laughs> I said, I've never run a campaign in my life. He said, well, you can do it. And I ended up <laughs> running wow. the campaign. 
campaign to retain Chief Justice Rose Byrd. Of course, there were a lot of other people who were involved, but we had a campaign headquarters. Somebody gave us space in the flood building on Market Street. But you know, I never once talked to Rose Byrd that entire campaign. Wow. Never. Nobody in the campaign ever talked with her because she refused to get involved. And so we had surrogate speakers up and down the state and did campaign literature and, and op-ed pieces and that sort of thing. And, and then so we, we won the first campaign. But California Women Lawyers was a big part of that. And then we had, you know, some really funny things, too. For one, remember Golden Gate Fields, which is out here mm-hmm. not far from where we're sitting right now, uh, wouldn't allow women jockeys. Well, we decided that was wrong, so we all got together and, and, and made a big fuss about, you have to have women jockeys, and sure enough, they did. And then, uh, and, and as part of the process, of course, our big push was to have more women judges. And so, you know, we'd go to Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown was a the governor then. And, history repeats. Yeah, history <laughs> repeats. And uh, we'd go to Jerry Brown and say, you know, there's this woman here and this woman here to be very, very good judge. And, and, actually, and then women did start, you know, going on the bench and now the rest is, is history. Do you think we're doing a good job of the rate of, of women on the bench at this point? Well, there can always be more from my standpoint. <laughs> Absolutely. Always Absolutely. be more. And, and you know, there, the there really needs to be diversity in the, the entire spectrum, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, that people need to feel comfortable when they when they go into court and the only way they can go into court and feel comfortable if, I mean if you can I don't know but uh, <laughs> is if you know hey you know there are people that look and act like us and they're they're part of the decision making interesting um what is your thought about lowering the bar rate, the bar passage rate? I just thought I'd oh. throw that out there. <laughs> I have so many thoughts on that. What is your I, thought? know, I, I, <laughs> I can't say I'm really in favor of that. Okay. I, I mean, I can't say I'm really in favor of that. I think, you know, I, I think, well, it's been a long time since I took the bar, so maybe, maybe <laughs> it's, it's not been that long for me. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. it's not changed much. Yeah, <laughs> I, I took it down to two days. Yeah, it's only two days now. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I have a hard time fully understanding why. I, I'm not sure I understand why, but maybe there's something I'm missing. No, I, well, I don't I don't know enough uh, like information regarding who it would help. Yeah, if there was information that that more women, I believe it helps the private unaccredited law schools who are duping people into paying too much for law education that they are not equipped to have, and then they're not passing the bar, and they're getting angry at their private law schools that charge them four hundred thousand dollars. Well, there it is. And they're the private law schools that are unaccredited are the lobbyists for lowering this score. Mm. It's and it all comes back to that they're Trump university all these students okay. who are then not able right. to pass the bar. So right. you're super into it then. I'm super you, into you it. You really want it. Well, I want to go back to three days and raise the bar score. Yeah. <laughs> Me too, buddy. A higher well, bar to I entry mean, here. It, it's, you know, when you're a lawyer and you have a case, you're going to have an impact on your client one way or the other and 
the others that might be involved in the case. So and I think it takes some ability. It's a hard <laughs> job, and it should be hard it's to get It's a very hard job. It's a very it's hard difficult. job. It is. If you're going to be a good lawyer, it's a very hard job. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so when you were president of CWL, mm -hmm. what were some of the issues that you were dealing with then? Jockeys and, and things like that, but if you could well, go into it, it. it. was the Rose Bird. Uh, okay. That, that, that was, was the year you were president? Yeah, that, I, it was... It, it, got a few it things going on that <laughs> same, It was about that same time. So you had a slow year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was about that same, wow. same time. And um, uh, I remember Marge Holmes and I, uh, had, we're, we, the San Francisco Bar Association gave us some space in their uh, bar headquarters to for our CWL desk and of course oh. getting members and arguing for judges and also broader than that too for women appointments across the board that was always very very part much a part of what we tried to accomplish did you ever consider a judicial path for yourself i actually have been asked to be a judge but i I am not interested in being a judge, and of course it's too late now, but I'm much more active. I don't think I could sit calmly behind a bench all day. You don't want to have to be neutral. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I probably am too much. Well, I recognize that shortcoming in myself. That yeah. I, 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 I would be, I'm an activist. I guess I always have been an activist. So. Yeah, but not necessarily a shortcoming in, in the role <laughs> no, you've chosen. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it served you pretty well. well in your, I've, I've been very lucky, so there's no doubt about that, yeah. We love to ask everyone about kind of their mantra and their, their, life's, um, like their life's mantra. Do you have something that has spanned throughout your career and your life that you always think of or a passage that you like to refer to, anything like that that kind of encompasses your, your viewpoint? Encourages you, maybe. It encourages you, yeah. I I guess I'd have to say I really do not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I really do not. You know, um, things will pique my interest, and I kind of get into it. And um, I actually um, am very proud of my work at Laguna Honda Hospital, working with seniors, and uh, I do a lot of work with at-risk kids. Even today, I'm in juvenile court and traffic court, a lot of traffic court as the kids have gotten older, mm -hmm. and uh, working with some single moms and, and kids. And uh, my husband keeps thinking I'm going to bring all these kids home. But I, I, I know my shortcomings there. <laughs> That's funny. But I, 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 I guess if between my parents always stressing that, you know, we had to do our best and help others. And then when I was in grade school, we had an unusual principal. I went to grade school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we had an unusual principal who uh, we celebrated every religious holiday. Every religious holiday was celebrated with something to be said about each religion. And then on uh, holidays, we, uh, you know, learned about various holidays. And uh, she was always one, oh, she made, this was in eighth grade, 
which she made the boys take home economics <laughs> and the girls take shop. That's awesome. At which the male teacher said, man, we got the better deal there. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, with my parents and good fortune at the grade school of people and women saying, you know, do your best, help others. You only come this way once, so enjoy yourself. So if that's a mantra, I guess I think that would have to it, be I my that, mantra. I think it is. That's a solid one. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, how do you think the needs of women in the legal system and profession have changed since you started your career? Well, you know, one of the sort of constant tensions, if you will, was uh, if you were a woman lawyer, could you still be a mom if that's what you wanted to be? Mm -hmm. And I remember talking with a lot of young women. They said, well, you know, I, I don't think I can have children. I would say, why not? I mean, if you want a family life, you know, why not? Uh, but the, so I, was it more work involved? Yeah. <laughs> Actually having a dog is a lot of work too. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> but um, I, I think the biggest tension, it's part of that, is sort of life-work balance. And, you know, the old saying used to be, that the law is a jealous mistress, that goes back to ancient times, meaning, you know, lawyers work long hours, which they do. But, you know, you do only come this way once. And so you've got to take time out and do other things as well and just enjoy life, whether it's a family or whether it's you're an artist or whatever it may be. And I think coupled with the commuting these days, mm -hmm. which really takes hours out of people's lives, to me, that's a tension. Now, that's a tension that may cut across all professions and employment, whatever, but it certainly does impact uh, lawyers in the sense that you're working long hours anyhow, then you have a big commute and kind of what's left for what else. I, I see those as big tensions, and you know, some people don't count commuting as a tension, but I do, and I, but I think obviously it's something that cuts across every, everybody. Absolutely. How did you handle your work-life balance of having two children while you were saving the world also? And married. And, <laughs> and married. And speaking and in front of the Supreme Court. Getting the judges reelected and doing yeah. all the things you were doing. A creating creating yeah. California women lawyers. And getting the jockeys to, to be able to, <laughs> the jockeys. to go. Well, um, my husband and I and the kids, all we always had Saturday lunch together. Well, we, we always had dinner together. It might be a little late, but and, uh, and my husband, you know, very good. He, he actually is a better cook than I am. I freely admit that. And uh, <laughs> Not me. My wife is better. <laughs> Not my husband. They're all better They're than us. They're all better than us. <laughs> they have They're, us. Yeah. They're all better than us. Yeah. Um, but we always try to take Saturdays as a time. And then I, I would keep Sundays uh, available, not 
for religious reasons, but doing things with the with the kids. Uh, they like to go horseback riding, and so you know we'd go do that, or the summer go swimming, something. You know, so I I did try to do to do that. Uh, you know, to try to keep some balance. Keep those boundaries. I think is something that yeah. that we work we have yeah. struggle with as, yeah. as lawyers is you yeah. know knowing when to turn off yeah. the phone, when to turn. Try to remind the myself computer. the work will be there tomorrow. Oh. Yeah. The crisis will be there tomorrow. And Absolutely. BTW, the courthouse isn't open right the now. The courthouse so I isn't open. Do anything. Yes. That's, yes. Uh, well, uh, boundaries is a better better word. And uh, uh, I remember when when I was the city attorney, there was there was one lawyer. I I literally had to make him go home at times. <laughs> literally had to make him go home, and I and um, I just thought, you know, this you gotta gotta have a life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> burn yourself out like that. Yeah, yeah. How do you? We were talking about this, Ariel and I, before you you showed up. How do you maintain your passion for law throughout the course of your life in the course of your practice i mean longevity this is a hard hard profession so how well, do you stay integrated integrated you know i've been very lucky i i have the good fortune of being more or less able to pick and choose uh the cases that i'm involved in now i and uh you know obviously since I have a firm, um, able to you know have people do some of the work that they think, Louise, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I've been I've been very lucky to be able to uh, decide what all I want want to do, and you know the people I work with are wonderful, and um, you know the cases that I'm working on are very interesting. So uh, I'd probably drive people crazy mm -hmm. if I <laughs> sat home all the time. Oh, and did I mention I love to garden? So I, my weekends, if I'm out, you know, some people hate pulling weeds. I have no problem with that. Get all my frustrations out. I'll take it out I, on those weeds. I'm going to invite you to my house. <laughs> I don't do weeds, but I like everything else. It's, oh. it's back-breaking work. Yeah, you know, it can be. Yeah. It can be. But I, I I enjoy gardening, and so I... They just keep coming back, though. <laughs> well, that is the truth. I don't they're, like that. I'm yeah. like, if I get you, I want you to be gone. Yeah, they are pesky <laughs> little critters, yeah. They are. Do you do a lot of in-court work still, or are you mostly writing your briefs and doing your research kind of behind the scenes? Um, I, I don't go to court that often, and uh, if I do go to court, people say, that's all right, Louise, I'll speak. So I, I don't go to court that often anymore, and if I do, it'll be on a pretty big case that others will be in, involved in. Um, but as I say, I do go to traffic court with my kids. <laughs> Juvenile court. <laughs> Juvenile court is, is its own special own animal. place. Yes. I can't lie, though. If I did an argument in front of the Supreme Court, I would stop going to court at that point. I just <laughs> microphone drop. <laughs> There's no better than this. I can't, yeah. I can't do anything else. <laughs> what would you say is your greatest achievement? It's a hard one. You know, I, 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 I don't know. Um, 
I think the affirmative litigation cases that we filed in the city attorney's office, I hope uh, that that has become a model for other offices. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but I think, I think that was very important just to get the idea across that you know city attorneys yes we have to defend the city and that's the main part of the job but also there's an obligation to defend the taxpayers and the consumers in an affirmative way so I think I would I hope that is something that people will view is always important. A lot of longevity in that one too. Yeah, I hope so, because there's a, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't look like you're you're slowing down or stopping your work. It's well, uh, it's not at, not at the moment. That's awesome. Not, not at the moment, <laughs> but as I say, I, I I do, you know, I, I do. We have our grandchildren uh, now. They're you know one's in college the other two are in high school but they ever since they were little babies have spent at least six weeks of the summer with us so i always take you know i always take lots of time in the summer uh to be a grandma and then uh we we go and visit the the grandchildren and our daughters who live in Idaho and uh, Idaho and Texas mm. and uh, so I do we do do that and then it, during the holidays I take all pretty much the month of December off to be with the family so did your daughters follow in your footsteps and go into legal our field? older daughter is an attorney she's in texas mm-hmm. and then our young well i should say our younger daughter is a lawyer in texas our older daughter is a high school art teacher oh wow teachers yeah. are it's one of the hardest professions oh, and oh, underappreciated underappreciated oh absolutely it's, it's, absolutely yeah. I mean, they're on all day they know, are so. all, all day I did a short she stint high as a school. teacher and I can't I couldn't hack it as a teacher I can be a litigator all day but yeah. to do a career in teaching is yeah. hard I did a short stint too and it, I've never been so tired in my life you know so. <laughs> it's, they, don't, they, they, they don't get much appreciation as no. they deserve that's for sure <laughs> absolutely um, so this podcast goes out to all of the CWL listeners. Oh, okay. So is there anything you would want to say if you could speak directly to the women who are listening about, you know, how to survive the profession, how to how to live the most courageous life? What, what would you want to say to everybody? Well, I think that I would say that, you know, being an attorney, being a lawyer is an important job. It's important work, no matter what field you're in and you do have an impact on people's lives and you never really uh, fully may appreciate how much of an impact you have but but you do so i would say appreciate yourself uh, appreciate the work you do and take some time out to enjoy life do some fun things uh, you know i just all these years, I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world, Mongolia, mm-hmm. Africa, but I'd never seen the Grand Canyon oh. until last month. Oh. And my husband, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. We've never seen the Grand Canyon. It was wonderful. And uh, so I would say to the, uh, work hard, uh, 
but take time out to see your own Grand Canyon and, oh, and awesome. spend time with your loved ones because that you only come by once and they're, they're the ones that are really important. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I mean, this has been wonderful. This has been absolutely fantastic to meet you and hear all about you. You're an inspiration. Yes, absolutely. As always, I'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Louise Rennie, for being here with us. Thank you to my fabulous co-host, Ariel Brown-Ali and Gilbert Young, who is our recording and sound engineer. Also, a big thanks to the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, where we record, and of course to CWL for allowing these lovely conversations. Remember, as the great District Attorney Nancy O'Malley says, if you do not have a seat at the table, then you are on the menu. Until next time.